take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Again, thank you for being here to worship with us today as we continue our series here in the summer, our summer series, Real Christianity. This uh, title is not original with me. It was borrowed from a book that I read several years ago. I wish I would have read this book 20 years ago when I was a brand new believer in Christ. It would have helped me a lot with the reality of the fact that I was justified and forgiven of my sin, but yet still dealing with a broken body and a flesh that so many times wants its own way. And so we've been going through this series, and um, let me just stop and say this. I'm aware that some of these sermons, they almost sound the same. And it's not that they're repetitive, but they are overlapping. The truth of these sermons does overlap a bit. And so I'm aware of that, but I think that sometimes it's good for us to hear the same thing said a little bit of a different way. How many of you are like me? You need to hear something oftentimes more than once. And if you read the Bible, you'll find out that God often repeats himself, uh, sometimes with the same exact wording, but many times he says something the same, uh, he says the same truth in a little bit of a different way. And so as you go through this book, you'll see that the second, specifically the second half of this book, is somewhat similar or overlapping in the themes as Carrie unpacks the reality of we are saved, we're justified, we are regenerated in a moment, in an instant, and yet we are growing in our understanding of this the rest of our life, and oftentimes we deal with the struggle. And so today's message is entitled The Struggle Within. We're going to actually go back to a passage of Scripture that we looked at earlier in our study, but dig in a little deeper in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25. So if you have your worship guide there, your handout, you can follow along and take notes if you'd like to and save those for later reference when you're going through uh, the Christian life. And perhaps these truths will help you. You know, every week my desire as, as your pastor is that what I share with you would help you. And so my prayer is today that you would be helped, you would be encouraged, you would be strengthened, you would be challenged, and that ultimately we would renew our minds to the truth of the gospel today and see um, God's work in our lives. And so Romans chapter 7, we're going to start reading in verse 14 and uh, read this passage of scripture. And we're going to unpack Paul's struggle that he was having and that he was experiencing in his Christian life. How many of you ever struggle with the flesh? You deal with the fact that there's a part of you now that wants to do right. You want to live for God. You want to know God. You want to show God's love to others. But how many of us know that sometimes our wanter doesn't line up with what our will is doing? And, um, and so we, we struggle with this. And all of us can be honest about that this morning. We all deal with that struggle this morning. And so I hope that this message will help us. So let's read this passage of Scripture. And before we read, I'm going to have a word of prayer and ask the Spirit of God to open our eyes of understanding that we would better understand what God is saying here to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes of understanding, that we would be able to see what your word is telling us here, and that it would speak to us. Help me, Father, to know what to major on today, what to just maybe briefly mention and then pass along to give me wisdom today spirit as i preach this message and lord that it would help us our goal of being here today is to worship you but also in that worship is to grow in our understanding of who you are what you're doing what you've done what you're doing in us who we are now because of you and how we should then live and so father challenge us today encourage us, strengthen us, comfort us. Thank you, Spirit, that you are a good, faithful counselor and that you know how to point us ever and always to Jesus. Thank you that your goal is to magnify Jesus and that the Word is a revelation of the living Word. And so, Jesus, we want to see you better today. And so, Spirit of God, do the work that only you can do. We thank you that you're a person, that you're real, and that you desire to speak to us today. May our ears of faith be attentive to what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14 of Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. And Paul just described every sincere believer as they battle with the reality that there's things that they truly desire to see happen in their life, 
and that they find themselves doing things that they now hate. That's a great sign that you're saved, by the way. (laughs) There's a part of you that hates sin, that can't wait to get a new body that'll never deal with the presence of sin again. If you're looking forward to that day, can I get a witness? Amen? Amen or oh me? Amen. Verse 16. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And Paul's going to repeat himself in verse 20 and say the same thing. Now if I do that, I would not, over verse 20, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So he says the same thing, again, to make sure we get what he's trying to say, which I'll I'll share what I think he's saying here in just a moment. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. What's he saying? The will to want to obey God, to follow God, to, to reflect his qualities in my life is present with me. That's the new nature. <laughs> That's the new voice. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. So there's this struggle. Paul wants to do right. He wants to live a life that's pleasing to God. He wants to be free from these sins that are, that are plaguing and hounding his life. But yet he doesn't know how. He's struggling. There's this battle. You can, you can hear the battle in the, in the words. Verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would, that do I. That I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law or an operating principle that when I would do good, evil is still present with me. Evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. So again, Paul's saying, there's a part of me that's brand new that I love because it loves God. And so I delight after God's ways and God's revelation and and, and God's law in my inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. How many of you, just stop for a moment and listen to me for a moment, how many of you thought when you got saved it was going to be roses, daffodils, and tulips, and everything was going to be easy? Anybody think that? Sometimes, if we're not careful, we present the gospel as, man, when you get saved, everything's going to be great. When you get saved, war starts. Because what you have just done is you have just gone from darkness, you've just just transferred your soul, your eternal destiny, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved dear son. And guess who doesn't like that? The king of the kingdom of darkness. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil now war against the believer because here's the the devil's goal. If you're a believer, he wants you to live your life in misery and be ineffective for the cause of Christ. He certainly doesn't want you to multiply yourself and share the gospel with somebody else and see them get saved. So the devil's going to try to do everything he can to war against you. And so when you get saved, you're entering into a battle. When you get saved, you you don't get put on a cruise ship. You get put on a battleship. That's the reality. But don't lose hope. (laughs) I think sometimes when we read this passage, we, ah, you know, you mean my whole life? Okay, I got saved to struggle. How's that hopeful? Well, I hope today that you'll see that, yes, within the battle, it's, it's it's a real battle. But there's great hope. We should not walk away from the end of the message today with either hopelessness or carelessness, but with a renewed dependence upon Christ. All right? So let's finish our reading here. So he says, So so there's this war against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of of sin, which is in my members, which is in my body. Paul then says, O wretched or O miserable man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So that's our passage, and man, I hope that, uh, yeah. This should be fun. Are you ready? Hey, I love vacations. How many of you have already been on a summer vacation? Raise your hand. Any summer vacationers? We don't get to take a summer vacation most of the time as a ministry family because we're involved in ministry. We're doing summer camp, VBS, other outreach events throughout the summer. And so we typically take our vacation 
the years that we take it, we take it in the fall, either in October or November. And how many of you can identify with me that you look forward to a vacation, right? I mean, we look forward to a vacation. We love getting on vacations. We enjoy vacations. But sometimes you can find yourself on a vacation miserable and frustrated, especially when you're on your way to the destination on your vacation and you get lost and you go in circles or you miss your turnoff by two hours, or you're really bad at GPS. Now, I'm direct. I was looking at somebody in our church who actually did that. It seems like it's all in the Beasley. I'm sorry, did I say the name Beasley? Hannah drove two hours past her destination in Missouri. Three hours, okay. Her brother obviously struggles with the same directionally challenged. Listen, I'm also directionally challenged, even with GPS. How many of you know that sometimes GPS is lie to you? Well, one time it told Isaiah Beasley to turn immediately left into a field. And, and, and so he did. <laughs> don't, don't follow GPS that, that blindly. Anyway, we all know that with, with, with vacation, sometimes you can be miserable on vacation. Now, some of us understand this. Some of, some of our worst family fights happen on vacation. <laughs> Come on. Yes, the spirit's stepping on them toes right now. And, and, so, and so we find ourselves knowing that there's this destination, but we're frustrated in the midst of the journey while we should be enjoying it. And I can't help but think about those, those illustrations, but think how so much of that is descriptive of our Christian life. Folks, we know that there's a destination that we're headed to, and it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be eternal. We're on our way to heaven but in the midst of that, we find ourselves many days going in circles or going backwards, frustrated, miserable, because we know where, we're, where we should be headed, and yet we see ourselves not making much progress that way. And what we do today as we look into Romans 7 and take a deeper look at this passage, we're going to see that Paul expre expresses his own frustrations here in this passage and gives us insight into both the reality of living truly free as new creations in Christ, but also still living in these mortal bodies, which are looking for Jesus to return and to rescue and ransom us. But in the midst of that, we draw sustaining power, and we can truly live free as new creations in Christ. And so the reality is we are indeed a new creature, but we still live in these mortal bodies, and we're going through a process of daily renewal that ultimately leads to final redemption. Last week, we talked about the three parts of our being and the three-part nature of salvation. We said that regeneration is instant, and in a moment, we get a new spirit. But then we start growing in grace, and so we're daily dependent upon Christ and a daily renewal of our soul. And then we're always looking forward to the final redemption of our body. So regeneration in an instant, renewal daily, and redemption final and eternal one day. And so we live with this reality of, well, the Bible says we're new creatures, but, but I feel miserable many days, and I don't act like a new creature. And so we're, as we study this, I want you to see that ultimately as you see what Paul's saying here, there's two responses you can have when you look at the struggle within your life. Either you can seek to rededicate your self-efforts to try to do better and try harder. How did that work for Paul? We're going to see here in a second. Or you can, number two, renew your dependence upon Jesus. And really, those are the two responses that you can take away from today. At the end of this sermon, you're either going to walk out of here saying, okay, I'm going to double down. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do this or do that. And so you'll try to redouble your self-effort. Or my prayer for all of us is that we would renew our dependence upon Christ. Because it's Christ that began the good work. It's Christ that does the work daily. And as I'll say later in the sermon, this isn't a work you force, but it's a work you allow him to do. And that's the little subtle difference that makes all the difference in the world to whether you're frustrated and going in circles or whether you are day by day seeing a renewal as you daily grow in grace. And so four truths here as we, that we see here in this passage. Number one, the first truth we see here in this passage in Romans 7, you can write this down in your notes, is responding to the struggle responding to the struggle. And I've already mentioned this a little bit. Of, there's really only two choices that you have today. You either try harder, and that's the first one we see here, or 
you'll renew your dependence upon Jesus and rest in him. So Paul um, sought to, as, as, as he lays out here in this passage, his attempt to get past the frustrations of, man, he wanted to see Christ's likeness in his life. He wanted to see freedom from covetousness, which is one of the big sins that he struggled with. But if you notice in the first several verses of this passage, his method was wrong. Look at what he says in verses 15 through 18. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. (laughs) Paul thought that he could get victory in this area of his life by trying harder, by doing better, by strengthening his will. But Paul lays out here the reality of the futility of that approach. Ask yourself this question, what is truly enough for Jesus? How much is enough? When, when you think about who God is and who we are, could we ever achieve, be, or do enough for an infinite Savior who gave us his infinite grace? What could we as imperfect creatures and fallible beings possibly offer to a God who has everything already? And so the two responses here, we can either try to try harder, but the reality of that is we deceive ourselves into thinking that this approach is even possible. Paul attempted to try harder. Verse 21, he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. It's almost as if what Paul is saying here is that his attempts to try harder was like pouring gas on the fire. It only made the fire bigger. And that's one of the paradoxes in the Christian life is it's not something Christian growth and, and progress in our daily lives and growing in grace and, 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 and reflecting the life of Christ isn't something that we force, but it's something that we allow. But Paul was trying to force it. He was trying to do better. And it basically, he was like, it was like he was pouring gasoline on the fire. How many of you know that doesn't work? It doesn't work. But that's what Paul was trying. And so Paul attempted to try harder. The problem, inherent, the problem inherent in this approach is our assumption that the goals and standards are attainable. But God's standard is absolute perfection. So what we are actually doing is, in this approach of trying harder, what we're really saying by trying harder is, we can achieve it. And what we're really saying by trying harder is, the standard is, is doable. But Jesus was very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, if, and if the Jews really heard what he was saying, he said, the requirement under the law is perfection. It's perfection. And so the reality is, trying harder is only going to frustrate us, and that's what it did with Paul. It led them to this, to this point of, of misery in his life. And so that's approach number one. Looking at the reality of the struggle that we have as Christians, we can either say, okay, I'm going to try harder. Or number two, we can rest in Jesus. We can rest in Jesus. Notice the change. And I pointed this out several weeks ago when we read this passage. But look at it again. Notice the the switch here. Paul has been talking about his struggle of trying harder to obey the law. And oh, by the way, there's, there's this big debate amongst Bible scholars as to whether this was Paul pre-conversion or post-conversion. There's a big debate about it. It's been going on for hundreds of years. Um, I happen to believe that this is Paul post-conversion because of a lot of clues. There's a part of him that he says that is new. The, the, he has a new eye. And he says that sin is no longer in him or, or of him, but it's still in him. Meaning there's still this power of sin working in his life. But his nature has been changed. He's a new person. And Romans 6 backs that up. He says that his old man is crucified with Christ. And so you see that Paul says that it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He also says that he delights after the law of God in the inward man. And so there's a lot of evidence that this is Paul post-conversion. But regardless of where you fall on that, what Paul is clearly saying is, Trying to either justify yourself or sanctify yourself under the law is a fool's errand. Because notice what he does. So he gets to the end of verse 24 and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. And then you can see the light goes on. 
he asks the right question. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He doesn't ask, what system, what list do I need to follow? But who? And he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Bingo. So Paul goes from trying harder to fully depending upon a person for the victory that he longs to have and see in his daily life. So the reality is, is the try harder approach eventually leads to collapse. But the good news is, as long as the collapse leads you to collapse in hope and rest upon Jesus, that's good. Because ultimately, God wants you to collapse under the true way of the law. When you really understand that the true way of the law is perfection, you understand you can't do it, and then you collapse at the feet of Jesus, and you rest and depend totally in Him. And so it's not a collapse in the hopelessness, but it's a collapse into the arms of Jesus. You walk fully into the arms of Christ your Lord. And so the question is, is will we cast away our confidence in the midst of struggle? I see so many new Christians. Hey, if you're a newer Christian, listen up. I see this all the time. I've seen it in 10 years of ministry in my life. Let me offer you a warning and a plea. I see so many new believers who get saved. And because the church is so excited, we're like, yes, you're saved. And sometimes we can kind of present that this is going to be all great. and There's not going to be any battles and there's not going to be any disappointments. And then life hits you. And you're like, being a Christian is harder than being lost. There's more battles. The challenge is, is not to cast away your confidence. I see so many new believers who get into this new life and they find that it's a struggle and it's a battle and it's a war. And they cast away their confidence and they end up giving up just at the beginning. And so I want to challenge you to don't, don't cast away your confidence, but cast yourself completely upon Jesus. Don't lose hope, but Fully hope and depend upon him. God tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your care upon him for he cares for you. I don't know. I just sense in my heart this morning someone needs that verse. Cast all of your care upon him, friend, for he cares for you. He's qualified to carry your burden. You can't. And when you try to, you're only going to find yourself Wasted, wretched, and a washout. And that's not what God wants. I love this quote in the chapter that we studied. Real Christianity is designed by God to overwhelm us to the point that we only have one option. To realize that he is enough and to cast yourself upon him in total dependence. And this is where Paul gets to. Paul gets to the end of this biography about his life. And I think this was probably shortly after he got saved. Because as a good Pharisee, he was brought up as Pharisee. So he's like, okay, I got saved, and now I bring this law back, and I try to follow this and this. And And he quickly frustrated himself, and then he finds, okay, hope is found in a person. Not in me trying to do better and try harder because I'm just going to pour gas on the fire. And so what God says here is to cast ourselves totally upon him in total dependence. Jesus is enough. Do you remember Peter? Peter had to get to the point of absolute brokenness before he could really be used by God. Talk about broken. He had denied Jesus three times. He had gone back to his family business. He had given up on the dreams and the call for God in his life. And it was at that point that then he could fully depend upon Jesus. And whoa, what a difference his life made for the cause of Christ because of that. The end of self is the beginning of real Christianity. And so that's what God does. And he's a patient, loving, heavenly father. And sometimes the, the best thing that God does is to allow us to try it our own way. How many of you as parents know what I'm talking about? You see your kid about to do something, and you're like, okay, they're not going to learn unless they try it their own way. And you hate to watch it because you know what's going to happen. But sometimes a loving Heavenly Father in His chastening allows that so that we get to the end of ourselves and say, Abba, Daddy, I can't do it. I need your help. I need to fully depend upon you. So how do you respond to the struggle? Are you going to walk out of here today thinking that the message is, all right, double down, do better, try harder, memorize more Bible verses? Not not that scripture memory is a bad idea, but but scripture memory is not the answer unless it's getting to know the person. See, the word is the conduit to fully depend upon the person. That's the issue. 
So how do you respond to the struggle? Number two, I think as we study this passage, God wants us to better understand the struggle. We won't spend a long time here, but look at verse 23 again. Paul says, I see another law or another operating principle in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So you see that within Paul, he understood that there was a part of him that was brand new. He had been given the mind of Christ. But yet there was still an operating principle called the um, uh, law of sin that was working against his new mind in Christ. While being saved is the most awesome thing that has ever happened to us, as I mentioned, being a Christian is the most impossible thing that we've ever attempted. It's a life full of paradoxes. When you say something like the Christian life is joyfully troublesome, how do those two words go together? But they do. Uh, The Christian life is joyfully troublesome. It's blissfully burdensome. It's wonderfully hard. James even says it this way, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Joy? Knowing that the trying of your faith works endurance, patience. Ah, that's what God's teaching us through this. Patience, endurance, dependence upon him. The Christian life is a relationship with your creator that will lead you at times into the fiery furnace to meet a faithful friend, into a raging storm to discover a sovereign savior who will rescue you and help you to walk upon the water. And then it will even lead you sometimes in our stubbornness into a whale's belly where you'll discover God's amazing grace. And then it'll lead you to a bloody cross to meet a suffering God and into a deathly tomb to discover new and eternal life. This is the journey of the Christian life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You see, understanding the struggle is this. God does not bring, pull us out of the struggle. He walks with us through the struggle. And he, he touches upon this in the book, which is, a, which is something to think about. Why didn't God just do it all at the moment of our salvation? You know, why, why didn't our spirit get saved, our, our soul get saved, and our body? Why didn't God just do the whole thing in that one moment? Well, part of that's a mystery that we don't fully understand, but I think part of the reason is, is because how many of us have ever had a couple of good days, and we started thinking, yeah, I got this thing figured out. I am the gift to the local church because of my Christian piety and behavior. I know that I've seen my kids sometimes. You know, they, they know when they've done right. They, they, they know when their brothers and sisters haven't done right, but they know when, you, when they've done right, and they're going to let you know. I think sometimes the reason we didn't get it all at the moment of our salvation is because of the fact that we would take the credit. We wouldn't depend upon God. We would say, oh, okay, everything's done. I'm good. No need to really have a relationship with you, God. I think that's probably part of the reason. And so God walks with us through the valleys. He doesn't pull us out of them. He walks with us through them. And that's such a comfort to know that his presence is with us through those battles, through those wars. And so again, if you're going through a valley today, my friend, my brother, my sister in Christ, Don't grow weary in the bottom of the valley. God is right there with you, walking through it with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He loves you. And yes, sometimes we want a God that rescues us from every single one of our problems. But if he was to do that, we would never be able to get to the other side and see that God has been working all things together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And so God walks with us through this struggle. The struggle of this life is not meant to lead us to hopelessness or carelessness. We do not give up hope, nor do we give up. That's not what God wants. What he wants us to do is to rest our hope in him. And here's the good news about this struggle. I mean, in understanding the struggle, here's the good news. It's temporary. It's temporary. This struggle is only for a moment. The struggle is not forever or final. Can I get an amen to that? Amen? The struggle's not forever. I love this verse. For our light affliction. Now, sometimes I'm wondering, now, Paul, light affliction? Come on, this is feeling pretty heavy. But he says light. Why? Because in comparing it with the eternal weight of glory, it's light. 
He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What Paul's saying is, listen, when you compare the destination to the moment, yeah, you might be going in circles, you might have gone backward, but praise God, this is only for a moment. God makes sure that every believer arrives safely on the shore of heaven. Amen? And so we understand the struggle. God wants us to understand the struggle. It's only for a moment. And the purpose of this struggle is to point us to hope in Christ. And then number three, we see in this passage Paul's explanation of this struggle. And this is an area that we really want to make sure we don't miss. God's work in us goes on. Can you just say that out loud? Say this, God's work in me goes on. I want to hear you say that because I need to hear it. Ready? One, two, three. God's work in me goes on. Let me say that again. Ready? One, two, three. God's work in me goes on. Thank you. I need to hear that from you. Thank you for preaching to me this morning. I need to hear that. God says, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 6. So we begin and end with confidence in Jesus, not fear and anxiety or despair, but with confidence in Jesus. And then we realize that His work is always happening in our lives, even if we can't see it, feel it, or understand it. How many of you, sometimes you feel like God is silent and you feel like you have been going in circles for weeks, months, years, and the struggle is just miserable and frustrating? Yeah, we've all been there. The challenge in those moments is to not lose hope in the fact that God is still there, even though you can't sense him or feel him or understand what he's doing or what's going on, but to bank on the fact that Jesus is always at work. If he says in Philippians 1, 6, that if he began the good work, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, then you can bank on that. It's true. It's not going to change. We might do this, but God doesn't. God doesn't leave unfinished projects. He doesn't. We do. We as husbands do sometimes, don't we? We got a garage full of unfinished projects, perhaps. God doesn't. He doesn't leave an unfinished project. There will never be a moment when God gives up. You might feel like giving up, but God doesn't give up on his kids. He doesn't abandon his kids. Paul walked every day with the confidence that his Savior's working, his Savior was working, but Paul also endured a daily reality of this war that he was facing against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's examine this threefold struggle. Number one, he talks about his inward man. And I tried to point that out earlier, so I'm not going to park there for long. But Paul clearly in this passage is saying that there's a part of him that's brand new, a new I. If you want to write in Romans 7, Galatians 2, verse 20, that would be a great verse to write there. Because Paul says in Galatians 2, 20, that his old eye was crucified with Christ, his old man, and now he has a new eye. Very important to understanding the nature of our redemption and what Christ has done and is doing. And so Paul clearly identifies his new self here in this passage. And he says that his new self has, guess what? New desires. New desires that Jesus has produced within him. Look at verse 22 again. He says, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Now, I just got to tell you, I don't think I've ever met a lost person that delights in the law of God because they don't have an inward man. They're like, oh, I can't wait to hear God's word. I've not met a lost person that likes that, that longs for that. Paul explains this conflict between his new self, his true new inner desires, and the fact that his outward behavior still doesn't line up with those things. That's what he's saying here in this passage. God's word uses the following terms to describe the new nature within us. Here in this passage, he says it's the inner man. In another passage, he calls it the inward man. In another one, he says it's the hidden man of the heart, or the new man, or the new creature, or his workmanship, or he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, or he says, Christ in me, or the seal of the Spirit. Those are all phrases that, God, that Paul uses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to describe this new inner man that every Christian has. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you've got a part of you that's brand new, the true new inner self. Look at some of these verses, Ephesians 3, 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory and be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. This is talking about a believer. That's why I believe Paul's a believer here in Romans 7. Maybe a very young believer, but he's a new believer. 
Look at this verse in, uh, in, uh, set, uh, in Ephesians 4.24, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. There's a part of you that longs for righteousness and holiness. You want to do right. You hate it when you sin. You're miserable when you sin. Oh, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but you know it leaves you emptier than when you started. How about this verse, Colossians 3.10, and you've put on the new man, ooh, this is key, which is renewed. There's that daily renewal, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So this new man, this inner you that Paul's talking about is the part of you that hates sin and loves righteousness. Righteousness. This is the part of you, catch this, I love this. This is the part of you that cheers you on for godliness. And this is the part of you that comes alive when you're listening to God's word, just like the apostles on the road to Emmaus. I love that verse where it says, did not our hearts burn us when he talked with us, by the way? Isn't it amazing when, when your soul is stirred by the preaching of the word? That's your new man saying, yes, that's true. That's good. And oh, that's where we need to tune in and make sure that we're listening to the inner man walking after the spirit. And so this is the new part of you that, that comes alive when you're hearing God's word preached or you're reading a biblical book or you're participating in the mission of Christ or walking with Jesus personally or serving others. This is the part of you that stands up with delight when you are somehow magnifying Jesus with your life. And so God's spirit infuses our new nature with a want to do right, a want to know God, and a want to glorify him. The challenge of the Christian life is, how do we line our wants in the new man up with the reality of who we are still dealing with on the outside? That's the challenge. So Paul talks about this inner man, but then he talks about the outward man. The outward man, or his old self, or the holdover patterns of that self called the flesh— he says in verses 18 to 21, he, he lays out, For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Sin is still in him, but it's no longer of him. So Paul identifies the flesh and the sin that is still wrestling against him, even though his old man, his sin nature, was crucified with Christ. If you look back at Romans 6, verse 6, it says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So God did something incredible in our salvation and set us up for victory but the challenge is, is we don't know it, we don't reckon it, we don't believe it to be true, and we don't yield to it. And thus, what happens is, is we get to chapter 7, and we try to do better and try harder, and we end up frustrated, miserable, and hopeless. But that's not what God wants. So Paul says, here's the inward man that's new, but then he points to this old outward man, his old self. Now, your sin nature is dead, but your flesh doesn't know it yet. Now, Forgive me for a crude illustration, but here goes. And this was one of the illustrations that was in the commentary, so I have a little bit of defense there. But I talked to my, I talked to my wife about this because I wanted to make sure it's true because I've never experienced a chicken run around with its head cut off. How many of you have ever experienced the joy of slaughtering a chicken and then watching its body run around with its head cut off? Raise your hand if you've had that joy. I'm thankful I'm not you. Uh, I just like Chick-fil-A, hallelujah, Zaxby's. I'm good with just eating the chicken fingers, not understanding how all that happened. Can I get a witness? All right. But So I asked my wife to make sure, and I said, so is this like a couple of seconds? Is this a few minutes? A couple of hours? I don't know, you know. I'm trying to figure this out. And so the chicken's dead. I mean, when you, when you put that chicken, not to get too graphic, but when you put that chicken on the chopping block and whack, that baby's dead. But the body does not yet know it. Its nerves don't know it yet. So its reflexes continue to act, catch this, as though it is still alive for a few minutes. Hopefully not a few hours. That would be really weird and troubling. And so it is with the power of sin in your flesh. At the moment of our salvation, the old man's head got chopped off. Doesn't feel like it though, because the motions of sin are still present within us. And we're living in the couple of minutes, on heaven's economy of time for sure, we're living in the couple of minutes from the moment our old man died to the moment we get a brand new body. And so 
for lack of a better way to say it, we're running around like chickens with our head cut off, sinning, not knowing that our old man's dead. Think about it. Since your birth, you've lived in the flesh. Your flesh is your earthly carnal mind and body and all of its natural bent on being self-sufficient. It's all that software that your sin nature installed on the hard drive of your mind, and you've been well-trained for a long time, and you've been solemnly programmed to sin. But then Christ came into your life. He came alive in you. He, he gave you a new nature, and that new nature begins to write new programming onto the hard drive of your mind. God's Spirit desires to etch the mind of Christ onto your soul. This is a lifelong process of daily renewal, daily download updates, like I've said in the past, where you're unlearning old ways and you're relearning new ways in Christ all by God's grace. So this is the journey. And so Paul lays this out. He says, here's my new inward man. Here's my outward man, kind of like a chicken with its head cut off. My old man's dead, but my body doesn't yet know it. And so I'm dealing with these sins working in my members. I think that's so important why Paul says that. Because he says that how Satan still works in us, he can no longer get to us through our spirit, but he can still get to us through the body. And so Paul references this in several of his epistles talking about the carnal man, to be carnally minded. And so he talks about this, this war in the middle of who wins. In verses 23 to 25, he lays out that the law of sin tries to hold him captive. And so Paul explains the war going on between his new nature, his inner man, and his old flesh. This is why the Christian life is a war and requires patient endurance. And so in the moment of this war and in this journey, we do not cast away our confidence. We do not end up in hopelessness or carelessness, but we renew our dependence upon Christ. Paul says it this way in another passage, in that scripture where it said our light affliction. In the verse just before it, it says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. So, you, so we've got a choice every day as to how we're going to deal with this war and this battle. And that all starts with believing and knowing what God has really done in our new life in Him. It's setting our mind to what's true. Paul says over in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, This I say then, walk in the Spirit. Our teenagers are studying Galatians 5 this, this summer. Great study. They're studying what it means to walk in the Spirit. Listen to these words. It says, And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Do you see the war? The Spirit wants you to follow God. And, and there's a part of you that loves that and longs for that. That's why you're here in church on a Sunday morning, because you want that. But then there's your flesh on Monday morning that gets on the road and you want to just obliterate everybody in front of you. What happens? Between Sunday morning service and the final amen and Monday morning at 7.30 a.m. on the highway, there's a disconnect. Something happens and we start walking after the flesh. We're no longer in the old man, but we can still run around like a chicken with our head cut off. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are the contrary, the one to the other. Catch this, so that you cannot do the things that you would. That sounds eerily similar to Romans 7. So that you cannot do the things that you would. That's exactly what Paul's saying in Romans 7. He's saying, I want to do it, but I can't. So what's the key? Walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit. Be led by the spirit. In these verses, and, and, and what does walking in the Spirit mean? I, I believe it means faith. It's the walk of faith. It's knowing that your old man is dead. It's reckoning that to be true. It's then by faithful obedience, yielding your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, not of unrighteousness to sin. In these verses, we see a battle that's raging. It's a battle for the control of your focus and your behavior. As we talked about earlier in our worship, we can come in here and sing words, but we're not worshiping in the spirit. We're worshiping in the flesh because our gaze, our focus is often somewhere else. 
So it's the mind and it's the behaviors that come flow from that. And it's being fought between the flesh and the spirit on the battlefield of your mind. The flesh desires to bring you back into captivity to sin and self. God's spirit desires to renew your mind as you grow in grace. And God refers to this growth as fruitfulness. I like fruit. We had a fresh peach this morning for breakfast at our house. Skin and all, I guess because it was a species or a, or a... How many of you like peaches? I do. That thing was good, tasty, refreshing, gave you energy. That's why I love how God describes the Christian life. He, he, he doesn't describe the Christian life as works. Now, he describes the flesh following life as works. But primarily, yes, there's a couple of places where he says we are his workmanship for good works. But most passages, he's saying we're fruitful. He wants us to be fruitful like a tree, which is so helpful for us. You know why? <laughs> Because a tree doesn't force fruit. A tree just simply is a tree. And in time, that tree starts to produce fruit. You see, it's not a process that we force. It's a process that we allow. It's organic. There's this natural outflow of allowing God's spirit to rule your heart. This is good news, folks. The best version of you is the new you under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. I hear so many Christians who say, well, I don't like myself. What they're probably saying is they're probably saying something similar to what Paul said in Romans 7, 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. But here's the good news. The best version of you is the new you under the control, guidance, and care of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. The worst version of you is the you under the control of the flesh. And so which one are we going to yield to? We are never more fully who God designed us to be than when we are fully surrendered to God's Spirit. When God is ruling your heart, He lives out the character of Jesus through your unique personality. Through your unique personality. I'm thankful that walking in the Spirit doesn't mean that we're like zombies. God doesn't have zombies, okay? You know, mindless. uh, uh. That's not what walking in the Spirit is. Walking in the Spirit is God's energizing work, taking your unique personality. I mean, this is why I love the New Testament, and actually the whole Bible, but the New Testament, you can see it so specifically. God took the individual personalities of Paul, Peter, James, John, and you can see their personality coming out in their writing. So it's not that the Holy Spirit of God overrides your personality. He actually takes the best parts of your personality and infuses them with life, and you become the unique member of the body of Christ that God made you to be. And can I say this? We need you as a part of that body. We need you as a part of this church. We need your unique gifting involved, growing, serving here in this body. And so Paul explains this struggle, and he says, listen, it's a three-part struggle. Outward man, or, or inward man, outward man, and here's the war between the two. And God calls us to walk in the Spirit. And then, quite strangely enough, there are benefits from this struggle. You might say, how are there benefits from the struggle? We're just going to touch upon these very quickly, so be ready to write fast. This sounds weird, but God's Word actually declares that there are blessings in the midst of this journey that sometimes we look at as not a blessing, but as a burden. What are some of those benefits? Number one, the struggle highlights God's grace. The struggle highlights God's grace. God is always at work turning bad things into good. That turning of bad things into good is a big word in the Bible called reconciliation. In the same chapter, Romans chapter 8, where God details more of that struggle of yielding to the Spirit, he says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good. Sometimes we read that verse as a bumper sticker, and we forget the context of where Paul is drawing that verse from. Just a few verses before in Romans 8, he says that the whole creation is groaning. That sounds like some struggle, doesn't it? How many of you have groaned? Whether it's physically in your mortal body or you've groaned under the weight of sin and you're like, oh, I hate this. Yeah, we groan. But God says, I'm working all things together for good. So it highlights God's grace. It highlights the fact that God doesn't give up on us and he's doing a good work. Even when we can't see him, sense him, or or understand it, God's at work. Number two, the struggle teaches me to walk in the Spirit. As I said earlier, it would have been great if God saved every part of our being at the moment we trusted Christ, but that's not how it worked. As a new baby, we start to learn how to walk, and, and we stumble forward, but we get back up, 
and we keep looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He begins the work, he continues the work, and praise God, he finishes the work. And so this daily battle keeps me dependent upon God, yielding to his spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the spirit. That word walk has the idea of a continual action, a daily dependence. It says, be filled with the spirit in Ephesians 5.18. Those are commands. Those are in the imperative. You know why? Because it's easy for us not to do that. And God says, this is essential to your Christian growth. And so the struggle teaches me to walk in the Spirit, in daily dependence upon Christ. The struggle keeps me growing in my relationship with Jesus. The reality of my remaining vulnerability to sin in this mortal body compels me to walk with Jesus personally, day by day, moment by moment. I'm daily dependent upon him for guidance and sustenance. Jesus calls me to read his word, to attend a Bible-believing church, to fellowship with other believers. Why? Why does he call me to to read his word, attend a church, fellowship with believers? Why? Is it because I have to? No. Is it because I'm required to? No. Is it because that's what good Christians do to gain God's favor? No. We've already have God's favor in Christ. But rather it's because I love him and I need him. The Christian life is not a have-to life. It's a want-to life. And that's what Paul lays out here in Romans 7. He says, there is a part of me that wants to follow God. And so we grow in this daily relationship. This keeps us growing. How stale would your life be if when you got married to your spouse, your relationship stopped growing? Now, we know that sometimes the struggle in a marriage is that, is that what's, that's what happens. And you know what? When that happens, we know there's something wrong, don't we? And so we go and we get counseling, we get encouragement. Why? Because we know that relationships are meant to grow. In that same way in our relationship with Jesus. So that's one of the benefits from the struggle. Is that we grow in our relationship with him. Number four, the struggle reveals the high value of his work in me. The struggle is an indicator that God's word is true and that there is actual spiritual warfare going on and there is actually something at stake in not growing and walking with Jesus. Christian, there is much to lose if we faint or quit. We do not lose our inheritance. But my friends, I don't want to show up to the greatest celebration in the universe and not have a gift to give the honored guest. How about you? I don't want to. I want to show up and adore Jesus and be able to lay something at his feet. And and I don't pretend to understand all the theology behind rewards, but I will say this. The Bible talks about crowns, and and I want to be able to show up with something in my hands. Because how many of you have ever shown up to a party, and everybody else had a gift, and you didn't? Kind of felt weird, didn't it? I don't want to do that. Well, I'll be thankful to be in heaven, but I want to make sure that I have something to lay at at his feet. So the struggle reveals the value of his continuing work in me. Paul said, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forth. See, he didn't get discouraged in the journey. He didn't get discouraged about what was behind him because he knew what was before him. And that's what God's telling us here. Don't get overwhelmed with what's behind you. Keep your focus on what's before you. This struggle reveals the high value of his work in me. Also, the struggle keeps me hoping for heaven and for home. If there was no groaning, we would not long for something better. We would become complacent and satisfied with this life. But God calls us to set our affection on things above and to set our affection upon him. He calls us to live with a higher hope in view. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. And so this struggle keeps us hoping for heaven and for home. This struggle keeps us magnifying Jesus. We magnify Christ by our faithful dependence upon him. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in the midst of the battle, and we believe that we already have the victory in him. The great challenge, man, when I think about the nation of Israel in the wilderness and when they were just about to go into Jericho, you remember Jericho was fortified, impenetrable city, couldn't be defeated. But... Joshua has an encounter with the captain of the Lord's host. Who's that? That's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And you know what he says to Joshua? See, I have given 
Jericho into thine hand. All you got to do, Joshua, is believe that. March around the city seven times and then blow the trumpets with a shout of victory and watch the walls fall. For some of us in our life, we've got a thing in our life, a sinful habit that we feel like is a Jericho. We have tried to beat that thing. We have, we have built bigger catapults. We've carried in bigger swords. And we're like, all right, this time I've got it. And I really promise, God. Mm. And we've not had an encounter with the Lord's host yet. We've not heard the good promise of the faithful Savior that says, the victory's already won. You're more than a conqueror in me. And so what do we do? We don't hear the still small voice of the promise that's already there. We go on our own. So the struggle keeps me magnifying Jesus, not magnifying my efforts. I don't think that the nation, when they saw the walls fall, said, oh, look at us. We marched around the walls. No, look at the captain magnifying Jesus. The struggle keeps me authentic in Christian relationships. You know, I'm thankful for this passage of Scripture. If Paul struggled, that means you and I struggle, which means that we can stop pretending. We don't come to church and present ourselves as all perfect and put together. I know we do this in the South, but we come in and we're like, hey, how are you? And we say, oh, good. Had a good week. Had a good day. I think we should start shocking each other. How are you? I had a bad week. <laughs> I had a crummy week. <laughs> but you know what? God's good. That's okay to say that. It's okay to say, you know, I got a headache right, right, right now. Um, I struggled this week with selfishness in this area or that area. I got mad at my wife. I got mad at my kids. I blessed someone out on the highway. You know, what this struggle does is it does keep us authentic in our Christian relationships. Who are we trying to convince we're perfect? But so much of churchianity, that's a word that I kind of, you know, churchianity, so much of churchianity, we, we, we come in and try to present ourselves as, you know, we've arrived. And you know what? The world looks at that, and you know what they see? Hypocrisy. Because they know the reality. So this keeps us authentic. I mean, if Paul could admit his battles and be honest, so can we. James 5.16 says, confess your faults one to another. So my prayer is that we would grow in our authenticity here at Fairview. Will you pray with me about that, that we would grow in that area? That we wouldn't just be, you know, acquaintances on Sunday morning, but that and part of what I love that our teens are doing this summer is they're getting into people's homes. By the way, thank you for opening up your home if you've opened up your home to a, to a, to a teen Bible study group. And if you haven't, that, that, that's okay. Maybe, maybe another time you'll, you'll be able to do that. See, see Jason wave at us. If, if are you still looking for people to host this summer? He's still looking. So if you want to host a teen Bible study, it'd be a great way to get to know our young people. I love the fact that we're doing that and, and, and getting into homes and just being authentic. There's something about getting into somebody's home that the guard gets let down. I mean, still, you know, if it's a new relationship, it's kind of awkward. How many of us know you got to get past the awkwardness of a new relationship? It's like, what do we talk about? The weather? <laughs> talk about Jesus. Talk about, tell somebody your story about how you came to know Christ. Tell somebody about what you've been dealing with this week. We're, we're afraid of them judging us. We're afraid of them being afraid of us. Just be real. That's what this struggle does. It keeps us authentic. And then finally, the struggle keeps us small so that he remains big. Um, I know these scriptures aren't necessarily the same context, but I think the principle still applies. Uh, John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. And so the struggle reminds us that we are dependent upon Christ. He is bigger, he is greater he is all that we need. He's enough. And so, friends, there are days where we grow weary in the journey. Many times the source of this weariness is due to taking a burden upon us that Jesus doesn't mean for us to carry. And the reality is, is the good news, Jesus doesn't expect us to perform for him, but to depend upon him. That's been the whole message today. That's been the theme throughout, and you've, you, you've heard it several times now. 
He wants you to draw upon his never-ending supply of strength. His grace is sufficient, for his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So God's plan has always been one of yielding, of total dependence. When we fail, our faithful Father, praise God, picks us up. And when we succeed, praise God, he gets the credit. Through every season, Jesus is the one that's doing the work in and through us. And so my challenge to you today is trust him. Trust him. Keep pressing on and keep your eyes fixed on the destination. Don't get overly discouraged. Don't get frustrated. Don't cast away your hope and confidence in the midst of the journey where you feel like you're going in circles, you feel like you've gone backwards, you feel like you've passed the destination three hours. You're going to get to your destination day by day, step by step, moment by moment. Trust, depend upon him. Let's pray together.